So hello, welcome to another uh, Pharmacy and Practice podcast. Um, yeah, so I was saying before the call, uh, borderline starstruck here. Um, real uh, proud moment in my career, actually, to uh, to be on the cusp of interviewing um, one of the most senior leaders in, in the pharmacy profession, really. So um, we're welcoming Duncan Rudkin onto the podcast this morning. So Duncan, of course, is Chief Executive of the General Pharmaceutical Council. Duncan, would you like to uh, introduce yourself and um, maybe just say a few words? Hi, Jonathan. Thanks very much for the uh, opportunity to uh, ask, hopefully answer some of your questions. Uh, I think it's, um, it's, it's good for me to have chance to um, just remind myself sometimes and uh, anybody who might be watching and listening what the GPHC is all about. The, the General Pharmaceutical Council is here, uh, as everybody knows, I hope, to protect the public. And uh, that includes patients, people using pharmacy services and public health generally. And we do that through various means around standards for pharmacies and pharmacists and pharmacy technicians too. Uh, and obviously during the last few months, we've been working as everybody has in very different ways. And I'm hoping that you're going to ask me some questions that will give me a chance to explain a bit about what we've been doing and why. Absolutely. And it's it's been, I'm not, I'm no longer allowed to say the word, uh, beginning with you and ending in precedented, but it, it, we really are in unprecedented times. And um, as the regulator, I guess, the GPAC has really been at the forefront of that. And you've, you guys have had to make some fairly unusual and at times difficult decisions. So yeah, we'll, we'll cover that. Now you've you've preempted my first question, which was what is the GPHC all about? Um, and I think, and what's their role really? So you've, you've, you've kind of covered that. So I'm going to go on to my next one. So what is a pharmacist, Duncan? What is a pharmacist? Mm -hmm. To my mind, a pharmacist is a highly skilled, highly trained, highly knowledgeable healthcare professional with a, a unique expertise and understanding of medicines. And I think that, um, I think to me, that's a, a pretty good summary. Uh, in my own experience, pharmacists are an uh, essential part of a team which cares for patients uh, and uh, provides services in, in really unique ways pharmacy throughout the pandemic has been through community pharmacy uh, uniquely accessible to the public and in hospital pharmacy absolutely uh, in the thick of battle during the heat of the pandemic so i think one of the things that just a reflection jonathan from me is that yeah. my understanding of what pharmacists do and their teams and pharmacy technicians has improved, I think, a lot during the course of the last few months even. And I, I hope and believe that for many members of the public too, they've uh, their, their awareness and understanding of what pharmacy does and what your profession does will have changed uh, and hopefully improved as well. Same question, but what is a pharmacy technician? And, and how, how are pharmacists different to pharmacy technicians in the view of the regulator? I think one of the things that is... Um, I will come back to you to answer your question, but I think one of the things I just wanted to say uh, as a pre preliminary to that is, to me, it's really important that we don't 
get drawn into defining professional roles in terms of tasks that people do. I think, um, to my mind, it's much more about what's the value and contribution of those professional groups. Because the tasks that different groups do, do change over time as technology changes, as teamwork evolves. Uh, and as we all across different sectors, including health, work to ensure that everybody is able to work at the top of their game, at the top of their capability, and at the top of their legal license, as it were. So the things that people do change, the tasks that, that doctors carry out and nurses carry out uh, in a different context have changed over time, just as the, the tasks that pharmacists and pharmacy technicians do. So I think it's um, important to, as a sort of preamble, really, to make that point that it's not about defining professions by tasks. Pharmacy technicians have uh, an expertise uh, and a skill in everything that's technical. The clue, I think, is in the title. Uh, it's very, very hard, as I think everybody knows, to produce a single def uh, definitive list of uh, the unique uh, elements of any professional role, whether it's a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacy technician or a pharmacist. I think it's these are titles which we use to describe things which do shift over time. I think one of the important things that um, where regulation has a part to play is in explaining to the professions and to the public wherever possible that in a sense, whoever is doing that particular task for me as a patient, whoever is caring for me as a patient, I want to know that they're safe and competent to do what they're doing. And the titles that are, that are used, uh, they're important, they serve an important purpose, but they are, um, they're, they're kind of signs and signals. The fundamentally important issue is, do people know what they're doing? Are they safe to provide the care that they're providing? So I suppose, I suppose that question, those, those questions came from there's a bit of soul searching, I think, well, in my mind, and I don't know, hopefully others about about what a pharmacist particularly is. And, and as you say, how our role develops into the future, because everything's changing all of the time. Mm. Um, but some of the feedback I've had from readers is around the term pharmacy professionals. And I know it's just a term and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here. But do you think that's a helpful term for both professions? So pharmacy technicians and pharmacists? Or would you um, would you would you maybe commit to using you know when you're referring to pharmacists, say pharmacists and pharmacy technicians, pharmacy technicians? Or do you think that doesn't matter? I think titles do matter, Jonathan. And what we call ourselves, and what people call themselves, and what they're called by their colleagues and their peers matters. I think I understand that 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 matters to people because it's about identity. Mm -hmm. um, your identity as a pharmacist has meaning to you that that is unique to you um, and probably uh, comes with a, a, a very great deal of, you know, quite profound emotion attached to it. It's part of who who you are and how you see yourself. So I respect and understand that um, in, uh, lots of individuals like to describe themselves in different ways. And certainly uh, uh, in different contexts, I'm very uh, respectful of the fact that uh, many pharmacists like to be described as pharmacists just as many pharmacy technicians are very proud of being pharmacy technicians and like to be described in that way 
I think you'll often hear us using at the GPHC using the term pharmacists and pharmacy technicians and pharmacy teams. Sometimes when we're talking about issues that are common to both professions, it's, it's a, a useful form of shorthand to use the term pharmacy professional. Uh, uh, and I think on occasions it can be helpful in that way because it, it also helps uh, to identify the pharmacists and pharmacy technicians do have some things in common. They're, they're both sets of professionals working in pharmacy. Sometimes, depending on the context, I understand, as I've said, that the term pharmacist carries some value which people appreciate and want, uh, and want to hear, and likewise with pharmacy technicians. I think it's, it's all about the context, and in different contexts, different terms can make sense. I respect, I hope, the fact that uh, for a lot of people, that sense of identity uh, is linked uh, with the title. Perfect. Now, in the grad, that was a very selfish uh, start to the interview because, you know, in the grand scheme of a pandemic, <laughs> what we call each other is really, it's pretty, pretty down there, to be honest. So, but anyway, thank you. That was just a personal um, question that, that I wanted to ask you. Um, I was going to not go here again, but, and you've, you've touched on it at the start, Duncan, but I think it's really important. So, so pharmacy and practice, I tried to do the odd bit of sort of, public service broadcasting and, and explanation and education and so on and so forth. So I think this is really important. What is the point of the GPHC and who are they answerable to? So the point of the GPHC is to protect the public. I think the shortest possible answer to, to all questions about what's the point of regulation and regulators is about public protection. I think it's worth unpacking that a little bit, expanding on it. And the law certainly does that because it, it, it explains that we have a role in relation to protecting the safety, health and well-being of individuals using pharmacy services and also the health, safety and well-being of the public generally. So that's our, that's our purpose. That's the, the reason we get up in the morning. That's what regulation is all about. We try to do that through uh, uh, using the various mechanisms that we've got in the legal framework and working collaboratively with, I hope, uh, as often as possible, working collaboratively with the profession, with the leaders of the profession, people who represent uh, different uh, viewpoints within pharmacy, but also with people representing and voicing uh, points of view from uh, the people using pharmacy services, patients and customers and service users of all kinds, patients and carers and families. I think that I'm making that point because it, it, it's about regulation as a collaborative endeavor, uh, which I think is fundamentally important because just as the regulator is there to protect the public, so too are the professions. Pharmacy itself as a profession, including pharmacists and pharmacy technicians are all about public protection too, which is why we need to to work with the profession uh, collaboratively. But that's what regulation is for. I love how you're using pharmacists and pharmacy technicians already. Thank you. <laughs> um, so whose job is it to hold the GPHC to account? We, we, we work for the public. That's the, the interest we serve. We are set up by Parliament and the Scottish Parliament to do that. Uh, and we are independent of government, uh, but we are accountable 
We are accountable in various different ways. We are held to account by the fact that we have to publish uh, reports on our activities and our plans. And we do that by submitting those to the uh, devolved uh, uh, authorities, to Parliament in Scotland, to Parliament in Westminster and the Welsh Assembly. And that is a really important form of accountability. Informally, we're accountable through asking questions, uh, which is one of the things that you're doing. So this is a form of accountability being held to account. Uh, in order to um, uh, make sure that our uh, performance is scrutinized systematically, along with the other uh, regulators for the health professions, Parliament set up a separate organization called the Professional Standards Authority, which carries out a review of the performance of the GPHC, the NMC, the GMC, and the other health professional regulators and reports on the performance of each of those organizations. And there's been, there's been some uh, mooted conversation in the background around uh, super regulators and so on and so forth. So do you, are you, are you willing to bet me a fiver that the, the GPHC will still exist in 10 years? I'm not um, not really a betting man, Jonathan, as you could probably Neither am I, actually. be surprised <laughs> to hear. Um, there are always different ways of organising functions, organising services, and certainly from the point of view of efficiency um, and consistency, uh, from time to time there are arguments about whether there are too many regulators for the health professions and whether having fewer of them, uh, perhaps with some amalgamation or perhaps even one big regulator could have some advantages and I'm sure it could have some advantages. On the other side, I think there's an argument that having regulators for each of the professions which are very focused on understanding and working with the context of those professions uh, add some value too, and I would uh, uh, certainly argue that in pharmacy that's a that's a, a factor to think about. That with the GPHC, although there'll be uh, no doubt occasions when, from different points of view, people in pharmacy, uh, some of them, won't appreciate things we've done or will disagree with approaches we've taken to different topics. One of the things that I think is a factor is that you can see that there is a regulator there which is. Uh, seeking to understand the pharmacy specific context and has a real commitment to working particularly with pharmacy. So I think it's in the end for others to make judgments about whether that's whether that uh, whether there's a benefit there which outweighs the potential uh, sort of efficiency and consistency benefits of uh, merger and uh, amalgamation and having one regulator. Uh, those debates, I think, will will um, continue from time to time. Uh, I think a more important um, set of questions, in a way, uh, is, or certainly more pressing and practical questions for us, is whether there is more that the regulators can do working collaboratively together <clears throat> with um, within the existing legal structures to improve consistency. So a good example of that would be, for example, improving how we collaborate not only with the GMC and the General Dental Council and the Nursing Council, but also with the Care Quality Commission uh, uh, and the other regulators of health and care in Scotland and Wales. Um, and that's about collaboration, working effectively together according to different topics. 
um, which doesn't necessarily involve merger. I think one of the things that one has to think about when thinking about structures and merger and amalgamation of regulators is that there are some potential savings there. There are also some potential costs. Uh, and there's also a potential cost of, shall we say, um, uh, diversion and distraction. So I, I don't feel defensive about the GPHC as an institution. Uh, it's not not for us to decide what the regulatory arrangements should be for pharmacy. It's for us to deliver on the regulatory arrangements that Parliament puts in place uh, and the Parliament in Scotland puts in place for Scotland and, and likewise in Wales. And we'll continue to focus on uh, the issues in front of us uh, and working collaboratively with other regulators, but also, as I've said, very specifically working with pharmacy organisations, representatives and leaders. I think that, yes, I think, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the regulation. I mean, again, this is a personal interest, um, the regulation around uh, prescribing independent and supplementary. And I think, would you agree that there's inconsistency across the piece there? I think one of the things that you get when you have different organisations performing the same or similar functions in different contexts, so let's take nursing and pharmacy, for example. Yeah. When you've got independent prescribers uh, in, different, um, in different professions, there is inherently there a risk of inconsistency and there are some actual inconsistencies because each organisation has to go through its own decision-making process, its own consultations, its own governance. So you do get that risk of inconsistency. I think one of the things that we are very alive to is the need to try and uh, identify whether those inconsistencies are actually relevant and appropriate because of the different contexts, or are they just an accident? In which yeah. case we should be better. We should all be better off without them. I think that's an ongoing uh, issue and challenge for us with with working with our regulatory colleagues across the other professions. I think the I risk, the the downside, I suppose, of putting it all in one place would then be that you might have solutions which are uh, not opt optimally designed for any one profession, or there might be one profession in the group that feels it's been, its particular concerns haven't necessarily been heard or, or taken account of. So however you do it, there's a sort of, there's a, there's um, a benef potential benefit, but also some risks to manage. I suppose, yeah, that's interesting. So I suppose my assertion around all of that, and particularly around independent prescribing in pharmacy, particularly possibly in community pharmacy, the practice is accelerating beyond regulation, in my opinion. Um, and I guess, I guess my sort of fundamental question really is, how, how do you know, you know, how do you know what, what all these independent prescribers are doing? And, uh, and the reason I ask that is when I look at my nursing colleagues and GPAC colleagues, or sorry, my GP colleagues, um, GPs particularly, I mean, they have a very rigorous um, revalidation process. Do you think the revalidation scheme or setup at the moment with the GPHC is adequate to safely regulate independent prescribing pharmacists? I think the contexts are different and the history is different. So, for example, the um, position, the development of revalidation in medicine took a slightly different path because um, the regulator was able, uh, working with the profession, to 
work on the basis of uh, a fairly well-developed appraisal model that was the norm within the medical profession already. So that could be built on for revalidation. Because that hasn't been the case so much in pharmacy, particularly in community pharmacy, inevitably we, we start from a slightly different place uh, that there isn't across community pharmacy a kind of standard approach to appraisal that we, that we as the regulator could simply say, okay, we'll build on that. So we are starting from a different place. We're in a different context in terms of how services are governed uh, in the widest possible sense, in, for example, in community pharmacy compared to general practice. So I think that those differences of context and history are very relevant when it comes to uh, differences of approach and how those evolve over time. I think when we're looking more to the future, uh, and as you said, Jonathan, one of the things we all need to be looking at is the pace of change and whether practice uh, is uh, and regulation get out of step. It, it, inevitably, I suppose, regulation, because of its, um, because it involves consultation and um, a, a deliberative approach to uh, looking at issues carefully and, and, and making thoughtful decisions can inevitably sometimes lag behind innovative changes in practice. One of the key ways in which we manage that risk, I think, between us, dare I say it, is how we've designed the standards, both the standards for pharmacists and pharmacy technicians on the one hand, and mm -hmm. the standards for pharmacies on the other, deliberately and, and um, specifically making those standards quite broad in the way they're described, focusing on outcomes, uh, does mean that one can look at any particular set of uh, innovative practices, and al although there might not be necessarily lots of detailed guidance about them, one can take from the standards uh, the, the fundamentally important points about safety uh, and so on, which actually work for all contexts and for innovative as well as traditional environments and services. I do, yeah, interesting. I, do, I don't want to labour the point, but I do. I do really think this is very, very important because the sta yes, the standards are there and and that's fine. But my my concern sits with this uh, the sphere of competence, and I guess my question then is how how do the GPHC standards guard against unconscious incompetence? I think one of the key things about a professional and that sits right at the heart of professional standards for all healthcare professionals, including pharmacists and pharmacy technicians, is that um, awareness of one's own competence uh, as in itself a competence which sits right at the heart of safe professional practice. One of the, I guess there is a, um, a balance to be struck because on the one hand, we need professionals who are confident, uh, self-confident and willing and able to innovate. Uh, if we hadn't had that during the pandemic, for example, I'm sure we would have been uh, across the board in a, in a very different and possibly much worse position. Mm -hmm. So what you, what you can't have, it seems to me, is a regulatory regime in which the regulator, in which people need um, a permission to breathe in and out from the regulator and licensing for specific tasks uh, which is why we focus, as I said, through the standards on um, outcomes and why our approach to education and training 
continues, I think, and I'm sure will continue uh, in the future, even as things change, to put a very great deal of emphasis on uh, the skill of being aware of one's own competence, being mindful of that and working within it. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I hope you don't mind me um, sort of coming at that question in a few different ways. I mean, I, I suppose I reflect on my own personal registration and this year, I know we're in the pandemic, so it's slightly different, Duncan, but you know, all I have to do to re-register is as an independent prescriber who can prescribe a myriad of products in, in, in whatever setting I deem myself to be competent in, all I have to do is write a reflective statement and pay the money. So you can see, I know you can see where the question is coming from. And, and it's it's sort of, I ask it to you sort of tongue in cheek as well. You know, I know things are moving quickly in the GPHC and but I do stand by my opinion that I think I think practice is um, is running faster than regulation for now. Um, do, do, may I just briefly add one point, Jonathan, which is of course regulation of the formal statutory variety does importantly sit alongside what I would call governance, which is about quality control and quality management of services and care, which is most of which actually needs to be going on at the level of the individual the team and the organization, whether that's a business or a trust or, or a health board. And all of those uh, actors from each individual, from the team uh, and from the organization management, if you like, have key roles to play in, in uh, that thing called governance, which is um, much, much bigger than regulation. Uh, I think there's a, there's a bit of an interface when you come to inspection of pharmacies where we are able to take a to take a look and take a snapshot, if you like, of what we see, but that is not a substitute for good governance. It can't replace good governance, which would include things like audit, uh, peer review, and so on. So, I think when we're talking about how does regulation assure safety, it's really important to see that that is part of a much bigger jigsaw, which includes the self-regulation of the individual the team dynamic, peer, peer pressure in a good way, uh, local management, uh, national governance, uh, the governance of the NHS in its various different forms, and statutory regulation articulates with and works alongside all of those other mechanisms. It doesn't uh, work in isolation or on its own, provide a comprehensive sort of top to bottom assurance of safety and standards. So one of, one of the privileges, Duncan, that I have at the moment um, in my, in my career really is that that I I kind of sit out with the system now I mean I'm on the register as a pharmacist but I I'm not really affiliated to any organization or or or, or anything like that now and that as I go deeper into my career I find that to be quite unusual actually and one of the things that allows me to do uh, when talking to guys like you is is bring questions really from my readers um, and one of one of the questions from not just one one of the sort of areas that a few people have asked me to discuss with you is is around the fitness to practice process. So I guess the blunt question, and you know, I'll say it in as as polite a way as I can, is the fitness to practice process in its current form fit for purpose, and and does it? Um, do you think the experience of people, pharmacists or pharmacists or pharmacy technicians who have had a complaint 
made against against them is uh, is is to a sufficient standard, shall we say? I think fitness to practice is inevitably one of those areas which rights, rightly gets a lot of attention because yeah. it it from the public point of view it's probably the most visible uh, an obvious part of what uh, what any regulator does and from the professions point of view it's the bit of the regulatory system that on the one hand safeguards the reputation of all of you and on the other uh, when it comes to an individual experience can be uh, very daunting and difficult and unpleasant inevitably unfortunately uh, in some respects so it's it's uh, you know, it, it's right that it gets a lot of focus. There is a, um, uh, a um, for many years, there has been, I think, uh, a, uh, a will on the part of the regulators, in, including the GPHC, to make uh, significant improvements with fitness to practice across the board, because I think we see that, and we experience it as well, that for individuals going through the process, it can undoubtedly be very frustrating and demoralizing. It can take too long. The process itself can feel very off-putting. Uh, and I'm sure that there are probably very few professionals in any walk of life who really want to be under that kind of spotlight. It does serve a really important purpose for the public. Um, but sometimes I think it's uh, when we look at the number of people that get uh, sort of dragged into that process compared to the number of people who are unfit to practice as it were at, at the end of it, it, it and the time it takes for people to go through that process it clearly needs reform mm. there is a move uh, to secure reform on the legal front with government um, but that of course is subject to um, the challenge of securing um, legislative change in the meantime, uh, one of the things that we're doing is reviewing our whole strategy for fitness to practice uh, from start to finish, essentially working within the existing legal framework. We know that we have a job to do to identify, to have a process to identify people who are either unfit to practice or, or whose fitness is impaired. And at the moment, uh, we know that a lot of people feel that the experience that they go through uh, is kind of out of proportion to the issues that, 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 that may, they may have had or that it takes too long. So we want to really improve fitness to practice. We are developing a new, whole new strategy for our fitness to practice work, which we will be consulting the profession and the public about, learning some of the lessons from the last few years as the public um, sort of appetite to raise concerns and to bring complaints has continued to grow hugely. And of course, that in itself presents significant operational and resource challenges uh, when it comes to how quickly we can deal with things. We want to get much smarter, I think, at uh, how we deal with fitness to practice by finding new ways, for example, to identify much more quickly where are the who are the small number of people that are presenting a significant risk or potentially a significant risk to the public and can we find a way to identify them much more quickly and smartly and then with uh, the vast majority of people who are not in that category but still involved in the process is are there different things we can do using revalidation for example using communication and using education 
to actually say, well, there was an issue here, but we don't need to go through a, a big, long, cumbersome legal process. We can deal with it uh, in a more efficient uh, and even more effective way. So I think if the question is, uh, does fitness to practice need an overhaul? Absolutely, the answer to that is yes. Anybody working in fitness to practice and any of the regulators would say the same thing. And I think um, we're all moving very much more in that direction. We want to be smarter. We want to be quicker. We need to make sure that in doing that, we don't put in jeopardy our chance of finding those rare people who are actually you know, a threat to public safety uh, and the challenges to find a way to identify them much more quickly and efficiently. Uh, so that everybody else can be, uh, as it were, allowed to get on with their business. Totally, totally uh, welcome that answer. Actually, that's great. Yeah, um, I guess my my own personal observation on on the process. Thankfully, touch wood, I've never been through it. But as a pharmacist, you know, having a complaint made about you is for some completely frightening. Now. It becomes even even worse if if we don't have 100% faith in the system. Um, and I guess, again, just my opinion, but I think I think my my plea to to the GPAC council and so on and so forth is really look at that and look at um, how that process could be made seamless. I don't think anyone, either in the regulator or 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 in the profession, wants more regulation, but but we do want better better regulation, better processes. My worry, as as I'm sure it is yours, is that if genuine complaints are not raised because we have a lack of um, faith in the system, then that is a problem. And of course, we'll never know about that. I mean, that is my job to raise that point. Um, I don't think that would ever appear anywhere else. Um, it's often what is unsaid is more important, and I think this is one such occasion. Anyway, we have avoided COVID <laughs> so far. So, do you think uh, do you think someone that supplies uh, a rapid antibody test is unfit to practice? I think you probably appreciate that. The way the fitness to practice process and the, the enforcement processes work is that one looks at one has to look at each of the uh, different elements of a particular situation, a particular context. So we've issued clearly issued um, uh, a statement in July to pharmacy owners giving our view based on our review of all of the public health guidance across the three countries of Great Britain. Um, and set out, I think, hopefully clearly what we understand the position to be. Uh, does it follow that a particular individual is unfit to practice? That's, it's, I'm sorry to say that's not quite how the process, the fitness to practice process works, just as with any particular set of guidance or standards. One can't in the abstract say that, you know, if you do X, you're unfit. The, review, the um, way in which decisions are made about fitness to practice uh, is all about context. It's all about taking the individual circumstances into account and so on. Um, and then alongside that, we have how standards and guidance work, which obviously works in in, in general terms addressed to everybody. Uh, so I think that's my probably my answer to that 
particular the way you particularly asked that question, Jonathan? I probably could have framed it better, to be honest. Um, will will the GPHC therefore now that you've set that precedent around the the COVID antibody tests, the rapid antibody tests? Will you begin to enter or give your opinion on other matters? I mean, one that one that has come up is homeopathy, and uh, I think it'd be quite a few people would be delighted if you if you came out against it, because you've obviously weighed up, you've looked at the current situation, you've weighed up the evidence, and you've you've expressed a view. So, would you would you consider doing the same for for other topics like homeopathy? I think um, we have to. Uh, be mindful of the fact that we are still in the middle of a pandemic, albeit the um, the most uh, sort of significant uh, lockdown measures have been considerably eased in most parts of the country. the The pandemic is still ongoing, of course. Uh, we, we're talking in the in the pandemic context, as you know better than better than me, about a novel virus uh, about which or the health professions and the scientists are all still learning very quickly and there is a lot of learning still to do I think uh, and uh, we're talking about a threat to the national well-being and the public health of an unprecedented uh, scale so I think that context is really important in understanding why the GPHC has uh, uh, spoken publicly on various topics, including rapid antibody tests. Uh, it, we're not living in normal times in that in that respect. So I think it's important to to put the statement on anti, anti, rapid antibody tests in that context. Uh, what it does do, though, as I think you're alluding to, is it does uh, highlight perhaps a, a, a dimension of our work and a focus that. Uh, maybe hasn't necessarily been so visible or so prominent anyway in discussions around the GPHC, which is the extent to which we are using our standards and our regulatory levers and communication to address public health issues as, a, uh, as distinct from uh, individual health and safety issues for, for patients. So I think we do need, as part of our reflection on uh, the pandemic and the experience we've had and others have had, we do need to look at whether there are uh, uh, wider implications of that. Uh, we haven't begun that process yet because, as I've said, we're still in the pandemic uh, situation. But I think it's a fair question and one that we will certainly need to come back to um, uh, on another occasion. As I've said at the moment, we are very much focused on this uh, unique context that means for example, that uh, probably the public health, uh, reinforcement of public health messaging and guidance around uh, preventing the spread of the, of the virus is obviously a very visible and rightly a, a hugely important priority for us at the moment. Absolutely. Thank you, Duncan. That's great. Um, it's been a, an incredible time, hasn't it? I think everyone, you know, everyone's personal situation uh, has we've all gone through that same stages right from lockdown which i think before the call we said felt like another universe really it feels like another era uh, last year you know um yes and i suppose the met the, 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 the sort of mental impact on everyone can't be underestimated but from a gpac point of view the 
there were an awful lot of decisions that you guys had to make. So, you know, provisionally registered, pre-registered, I mean, that was a big problem coming down the track that you had to make a difficult decision on. Um, various other things, you know, stopping inspections, that was something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, do you think, Are the, I guess the question off the back of that is, are the public at more risk now that inspectors aren't going into pharmacies? Well, just factually, at the moment, we are we are going through the process of resuming um, inspections. It's not quite business as normal because, as I've said just now, we're still in the pandemic situation. But we are able to do more on-site inspections. We're obviously prioritising inspections of pharmacies according to uh, what we know about the history. Um, so we're beginning to get out and about there more in relation to inspection. I think throughout the pandemic and right from the outset, we took the view that um, we could uh, essentially best protect the public, which ha is and always has been and, and always uh, pandemic or, 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 or not, is always our priority. We took the view during the pandemic that we could do that most effectively and most usefully by working supportively alongside pharmacy and, and much more explicitly in that supportive mode. And the way we ch uh, changed our approach to inspection uh, in that time has, uh, I think, been part of that. I think as uh, things change, we need to keep um, uh, ourselves changing. Uh, we did that with the pandemic. We'll no doubt do that as we come out of the pandemic, uh, certainly in its acute phase. Uh, I think there have been lots of ways in which the regulator, we as the regulator, just as the profession itself has had to adapt uh, and be agile and make some unprecedented decisions uh, very quickly. Uh, and I think throughout the whole thing, one of the things that helped keep us confident, if you like, that we were not uh, putting the public at risk, either in, in relation to inspection or provisional registration, was that real coming together that's been so impressive across pharmacy that I, mm -hmm. I think, I hope we have been part of and the, certainly that we have felt the benefit of knowing that we'd got uh, everybody in the uh, in the profession in the leadership bodies in, in representative roles and many individual members of the profession in all sorts of different contexts really pulling together with each other but also helping us to make those decisions i think and i think it was that's given us confidence i think and i think i think that's well placed i think i agree i think a lot of those decisions were um I think they were very timely. You know, you, the GPHC didn't hang around with with most of them, and and that was really welcome because I think at the coalface, everyone else was having such a tough time. You know, these things. You know, like um, I'm thinking of revalidation and you know the provisional registration piece. These are things that we didn't need to be worrying about, um, as you say, in the context of a pandemic. So, just a couple of questions to finish. What, what was the most difficult of the COVID-related decisions, in your opinion? I don't have to think about that very long because the uh, single most difficult set of issues we've had to deal with, and which we are still working through, obviously, is everything to do with the registration assessment and mm. uh, provisional registration. Um, that has been, and will, I'm sure, continue to be uh, our single biggest COVID challenge from from our point of view as the regulator um, because it's it brings together 
strategy, policy, money, operations, uh, and everything in, in a, a set of processes which are fundamentally important to public safety and the standards of the profession. Uh, so it's 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 been um, the biggest, most complex, most challenging set of issues we've had to deal with. Um, I would say by a considerable margin, uh, and okay. the way in which the way in which uh, we've tried to respond to that, I think, has been really, really helped. I mean, enabled by the way pharmacy has come together collaboratively to make it work, uh, and uh, and I think that's what we're counting on. It helps us with designing the policy, but it's also important that that is maintained now because, of course, we've got provisionally registered pharmacists working and we need everybody to not lose sight of the need to support and continue to support them and their patients and teams in novel ways. And I think I would hope that that um, is something that not only works now, but also has long term benefits as well. Brilliant. And, and I would echo that. I mean, it's pharmacists and pharmacy technicians have absolutely turned up. Um, you know, uh, arguably, um, we were we were the ones on the front line, right right in the thick of it, keeping keeping medicines uh, flowing to the patients, really. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with you there. And there was it was a it was a really although it was a desperate situation, it was a I don't know what the term was. Uh, there was a collective. Uh, direction and effort which felt good as a profession to be honest with you um it's been great speaking to you duncan i, I mean uh, there's there's loads of other stuff i want to ask you about i mean for example publication of uh, inspection reports lots lots and lots of topics i mean the gphc was reforming and moving at pace before the covid pandemic um you know and, and i know we had this interview arranged beforehand and there was even back then, there was lots to talk about. Um, there's almost too much now, but you've you've been really, really good, and um, I really, really appreciate your time. One one final question, and your your background is law, isn't that right? Yes, I originally trained as a solicitor. Perfect. So, I, I, I mean, this is a, a question that I ask um, more exper more experienced uh, members of of the pharmacy profession, but in your case, the law profession, what's your advice for young pharmacists or even young um, law students coming onto the register? Oh, what's my advice? Mm. Um, believe it or not, I don't like giving advice. Um, <laughs> it's not something that comes naturally to me. Um, I um, I would hope that, that, that people who are starting out in their career are doing doing something that they love and want to do uh, and that they can be doing that in a way that is optimistic uh, and looking forward. Um, we're in a period of unprecedented change. We were before the pandemic. The pace of change has kind of exploded in the last few months and it seems to me that, that in various ways that will continue. So I think um, I think it's about looking forward, being optimistic, and I hope doing. I hope that young pharmacy technicians and farm and pharmacists uh, are doing what they're doing because they love it and they want to. They want to. Um, they want to be spending their time caring for people, using their skills, 
uh, and developing in their profession and developing their profession as part of that. Wonderful. Let's end it there. Just, just, uh, I just want to say thank you very much for for taking the time. Some, uh, some tricky questions, which of course you've 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 answered with aplomb. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, and uh, hopefully see you in person soon. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you.